from Boca Raton, Florida. This is Behind the Bima. On this episode, the rabbis are joined by Dr. Ellie Shapiro, director of the Digital Citizenship Project. Ellie discusses how to use the internet to enhance, not interrupt, explains how to be a responsible digital citizen, and talks about the prevalence of online bullying even among adults. Plus, the rabbis reflect on a sad day in our nation's capital, and a discussion about Rabbi Goldberg's cover article in Mishpacha magazine this week. All this and more, Behind the Bima. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's Wednesday night, 9 p.m. I'm your host, Rabbi Efren Goldberg, joined by my dear colleagues and friends, Rabbi Philip Moskowitz and Rabbi Joshua Brody. And welcome to another... Behind the Bima. Behind the Bima. We begin this night with a sober, sober sense and attitude. We join the rest of our uh, our sacred country in praying for the welfare of our country. What happened today in our capital, though we are an apolitical show, this is not a political issue. This is uh, simply uh, not only a good American, but a good person. Decent people everywhere should be deeply, deeply disturbed, defended, scared, concerned by the vicious attack on our democracy in our capital. Um, this was not only a symbolic attack on a democracy and its process, this was an actual attack. Uh, life was lost and others could have been. I know that um, the daughter-in-law of one of our members who works on Capitol Hill was in an office when this attack occurred and had to hide under a desk, was escorted out by security. Very scary for, for her in-laws in our community. Um, I was in touch with our congressman, who's a dear friend of all of ours and of our shul, a member of our shul, and uh, obviously very concerning, very rattling day. So today's attack was not just a symbolic attack on an idea or a process, though that would be deeply concerning enough, but it was a really vicious attack that cost a life and potentially others. So we begin with a somber note of, of prayer and of hope that uh, peace will be restored and those who did this will be accountable and a process will be returned to. It is, in fact, maybe we're losing some of our, our live listeners, but that's okay, who are following what a statement it is to come back to that chamber and to be able to resume where they were and that count. And uh, our hearts, our thoughts are not only with the members of Congress and the Capitol Police, but really the American people. And uh, please, God, we can bounce back from that. Let it be a lesson. And hopefully many will learn from it of how far we have sunk, how how deep we have gone, and hopefully it is a bottom that we can bounce from in order to be able to unite and decent people can rule instead of extremists. I mean, and I know I'm sure many of you this weekend when we say the prayer for the welfare of the United States of America will obviously add on a new meaning as we dive in for the government and the members of the government to be able to represent us in a democratic way and in a safe and secure way. Yeah, absolutely. That is uh, that is a theme. You know, we've been davening for the welfare of the government and our rabbis in Pirkei in several places. Ezra, in the book of Ezra, when he, the Jews are, uh, he instructs them, pray for the king and his family. In the book of Yirmiyahu, when they are on their way to... Um, when they're on their way to uh, to Bavel near Mio, when they're going into exile, he says, when you are in the diaspora, when you're dispersed among the nations, pray for the government. Because we know, as uh, Rabbi Hanina Skan Kohenim taught, if the government is not strong, then chaos ensues. And uh, the way that the big fish swallow up the small fish, so it is with people. And uh, this is a harsh reminder of that. And uh, we're all davening for that. It's really... Um, it's a sacred chamber. It's a place of democracy that was uh, unprecedented and and and... Well, of course, we love Israel and identify, and it's where we all belong one day. We have a lot of love for America and the country it has been and the patriotism we have for it. And as I said, this has nothing to do with Jewish, non-Jewish, or anything else. Decent people everywhere should be deeply disturbed by what happened today and calling for a return to some sense of normalcy. Is there a feeling that this is going to spread all over the country? Like, you know, there were riots all over the summer and 
you know, what started as one began a whole movement, essentially. I wonder if this is going to continue. Yeah, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. I mean, I hope, and again, this is all still so raw and so fresh, but like I said before, I hope it represents a rock bottom, that even those who've equivocated or been on the fence or defended certain things or associated in certain ways, um, and, and you've seen that. You've seen you've seen people who have called what this is out, and it's extremist. This is not mainstream anything or anybody, but disturbing deeply. And I don't even want to discuss this more because, as I said, we're an apolitical show. I want to focus on the part of this that's not political, but not anything beyond that, just in, in calling it out, condemning it. And even to transition to another topic, we're going to bring on um, our friend, uh, Dr. Shapiro, Ali Shapiro, shortly. is going to talk about what it means to have a responsible online presence. But, you know, I've been thinking a lot because... Um, for a lot of reasons. But, you know, what's interesting is our colleagues, very often something like this happens and there's a, a race and a rush to put a line out online, social media, to make a statement, to right. weigh in. And and I'm always somewhat hesitant and reluctant, not because I don't agree or we don't agree with what is the obvious statement or conclusion, right. but sometimes it's like, why do you need to state the, the obvious so, and, and then I or we will get criticized over that, right? Well, you say this, but you were silent, so you must be okay with an attack on the Capitol, or you uh-huh. must be okay with racism, or you must be okay with an Israel when such and such happens. And sometimes it's that, you know what, there are things so egregious, so extraordinary. Sometimes, first of all, you have to catch your breath, you have to process, you have to try to capture how you want to communicate it. There's no rush, there's no race, there's no competition to be the first to weigh in um, sometimes. Other times you just feel like something is so obvious that you don't need to say. And if you're saying it, why exactly are you saying it? So right. I'm not being critical of anybody who's weighed in already. I'm just sharing part of my own thought process of, you know, do the three of us need to go online tonight and on social media say we share and this was terrible and all the things we just said here and decent people everywhere and democracy and right. so on and so forth, just so that we can avoid someone later sending that critical email or online calling us out. Where were you when? And uh, that's an unfortunate byproduct of uh, this online world we, we live in. I've been thinking about that all day since this has happened, not only with this particular incident, but more broadly. I was going to say, but then you, you, I'm saying you'll be writing statements almost every day. There's always something to, and then I was thinking you actually do, for the most part, write statements every day on something very important. So but you realize you realize how dangerous what you just said is because there are people listening who will say, "No, no, no, this is not an everyday occurrence." And right. they're right. What happened today is not every day. In some way, it's unprecedented or it's unprecedented in modern times. So they're right. The problem is others will say that other things are unprecedented, right. and that's where it gets really, really complicated. I just do the easy thing. Whatever you put out, I just share. And then I'm, you would say, I don't know how to write my own statement there. So whatever you guys say. A lot of pressure. Exactly. No, but I do think it's important. I do think it's important, especially in a world where the lines between right and wrong have become so blurred. I do think it's important that people come out and make statements, even if they're obvious statements, but they reaffirm certain values that we have. And I think that's, that there's a, there's a real importance in that, certainly in our day and age when there's so much um, misinformation out there. Right. Right. Well, I mean, well, listen, I, I, I'm, I'm on a lot of conversations among leadership on, on certain other national rabbinic and other organizations. And the same debate happens at that national level. What do you put out statements about? And then this side will be upset you didn't put a statement out about the other thing, or the statement wasn't strong enough. And you know, Moskowitz and I are in a chat that even he commented on a not 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 as a criticism. It was a fair observation you had, but a certain Jewish organization put out a statement already tonight quickly, but they didn't call out anyone by name. Let's just say they talked about the behavior, the activity, and the and the 
people who speak irresponsibly and incite towards that conclusion. So is that good enough? Were they trying to walk this fine line? Were right. they trying to be heard by everyone on all sides? Should they have called out a name? So, you know, it's interesting. We're going to call, we're going to bring Dr. Shapiro on momentarily, who will talk about responsible use of our online footprint, our digital, digital citizenship in terms of filters and what we're exposed to, um, in terms of what we post and share. But you could have a similar conversation in the other direction. Absolutely. And one of the things that I struggled with today, and I wonder if you guys had something similar, um, I had I had difficulty explaining it to my kids. You know, how do you describe to your children that the Capitol really is such a symbol of American democracy, yeah. something that's be, supposed to be so secure and sacred? And I had to figure out a way to describe what was going on to them. And it was really hard um, and somewhat painful. Right. But important. I think it's important to talk to our children. They should know. They should be informed. They're going to hear about it. And so instead of at recess or lunch, and obviously kids of different ages are different, but you know, this is part of, of Chinuch is educating them of how do we see, how do we interpret, what do we tolerate, how do we feel about it, how do we speak? Right, Stop. absolutely. And that's one of the things we spoke about is you know something that we spoke about online all the time, which is c- civil discourse. How do you disagree with someone agreeably in a way that you don't um, resort to violence, that you're able to use your words in a constructive fashion? Um, and right. it's very hard to do that when you, when you see what happened in, in Washington today. I'll tell you this, it did not take 2021 long to go downhill. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's attitude, we're going to turn the calendar clock new secular Gregorian year, fresh start, only blessing, great things, new beginning. January 6th, took us six days, six days to do the newest unprecedented. That's a word that we use a lot lately. I don't even know if we use it accurately. We use it a lot that reflects our shock at what's happening. Pandemics are not unprecedented. Unfortunately, they've been going on, I think, once a century. And this is not unprecedented in American history, sadly and tragically. It's just unprecedented in modern times. But we are we are ta- describing things as unprecedented at too quick a rate. No, but it is unprecedented because, you know, we've come to believe that with modern technology and security, you'd be able to secure a capital. You'd be able to have enough in your arsenal to be able to protect the country from things like this. And I think it's that false sense of security right. which makes today so jarring for so many of us. Right, right. Yeah, it's scary. scary. Very scary. It is scary. Can I um, can I flex for a moment just to not? You can not, flex away because I was going to go there anyways. No, no, we're not going there. I wasn't going to flex about that. And and Robert Brody, if you could move your camera a little bit to your left, would be great. <laughs> um, I I was going to actually flex about something else, which is one of the highlights of my professional life. But even my life was I had a great privilege. And there's there's a funny story that goes with this, so that we can transition into a little bit lighter because people tune into behind the bima. You know, it's an important right. issue of the day, couldn't be ignored. But you know, people come here to get away. But you both probably remember because it was your best practical joke of your lives. But I had I had the great honor and privilege. Um, I mentioned our congressman is, is a good friend. That's not a flex. That's before he ever was a congressman. He was a good friend working in the leadership of our local Jewish federation. Um, anyway, he invited me to give the prayer in the House of Representatives from that very, what is now going to be a, I don't know what the, can you use the word iconic picture in a negative sense? What, what, what will be a, a terrible picture in, in perpetuity of, of right? That, that person who crashed the chamber and stood at the speaker's, uh, podium and, and raised his fist today. And that will go down in infamy as a picture. So I had the privilege of delivering a, um, a prayer, a short prayer. 
a very edited and censored prayer, but a prayer nonetheless um, from that place. And that was one of the great honors. And, you know, I took my kids, I flew to Washington and spent the day. My parents flew in. You know, that's how hallowed that chamber is. That's how sacred a moment. That's what a privilege that that was to be able to stand there. And so um, I'm not sharing that to flex so much as to to say that to see it so desecrated, so desecrated is really, you know, of course, within Lahavdeb and Kodesh Lachol, we know what's holy, Shul, Sifrei Torah. I don't, not violating, I don't want to be too, too exaggerating in, in the description of it as a holy place, but as patriotic Americans and its significance in history, it is a hallowed place and it was desecrated today and that is significant. Wait, you now, Rabbi Brody, that... do you want to tell, do you want to tell right. our viewership why that was the greatest practical joke of all time? First of all, I'm not sure that that was the greatest. It's definitely in the top two. There was another one at the Shul dinner about 15 years ago. Yes. <laughs> we'll come we'll, back we'll to that. We'll hold that. We'll come back to that. But let's go to this. <laughs> Roll the tape, please. <laughs> well, why don't you, why don't you, you were the one who pulled the practical. No, I didn't, do, no, I didn't do it. Go ahead. What happened, oh, Rabbi yeah, Montfort? Yeah. Well, Rabbi Goldberg was scheduled to speak on the floor of Congress. He was very excited about it. Some might say a little bit nervous about it, which I understand. It's, Absolutely. as you said, it's a hollowed space. And then Rabbi Brody, he got a phone call right before he was going to travel to Washington. What did the phone call say? I'll be honest, I don't even remember the phone call. What happened? We called, we called Linda. Who did we get involved in this? We had to get a whole lot of people involved. And we said that there was, it, it got the pencil, right? It got canceled. Uh, you, Prank phone call that it was canceled. I called from the White House. No, no, no. One second, one second, one second. I don't remember. I got this like, you, you, I don't know whether you paid some service to fake voices or you put on a fake voice, (laughs) but I answer my phone and it's a woman's voice saying, please hold. And I hold and it's like, (laughs) basically, and it was like some secretarial voice calling and saying that. Um, I'm so sorry. I was flying the next morning with right. my kids, my parents. Like I said, I like wordsmith. I had to fit it in with this time. I want to say certain right. things. Like Forty three so seconds. Gotta squeeze it in, right. and 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 I got this call that said, um, <laughs> actually, I think it said the president. This was this was under President Obama, right? It said yeah. the president. Yeah. It said the president is actually going to be in Congress in the House of Representatives tomorrow, and so he chooses his clergy member to give the prayer. So we have to cancel. <laughs> And I was like, cancel. I'm like geared up, excited. People have plane tickets, but I didn't want to sound like chutzpahdick. Like, right. no, no. Do you know who I am? <laughs> I, I, I hadn't, I hadn't yet been on the cover of anything, so I couldn't say, do you know who I am? So instead, I was just like, okay, but are you sure? And and can't we? And are we rescheduling? And what will be? And this went on and on. Right. And I was balancing like disappointment, frustration, anger, until right. finally Brody, as he often does, cracked and started giggling and I realized and figured out what was happening and and that was that but it was, um, it was okay. a very very special moment all right ladies and gentlemen let's join let us welcome our special guest for the evening Dr. Ellie Shapiro thank you so much for being with us Dr. Shapiro good evening I don't know what was distracting me more the picture of Rabbi Goldberg or the Van Halen thing going on <laughs> both, both of them a- were that yeah. is a very fair it's, it's, let's it's get- just art our family just made these pictures I'm not going to yeah. You you figure out which one I made. 
It's like, okay, it's like a Rorschach test back there. Like <laughs> we can do a psychological analysis. Dr. Ali Shapiro, licensed clinical social worker, a doctorate in education and expertise in mental health, educational issues. And uh, for those who don't know, a noted writer, thinker, speaker. Uh, he's been to our community several times. I've done training for parents and for educators. And I think, I don't want to say what's most significant in your life. That's for you to say. But I think maybe we best know you as the creator of the Digital Citizenship Project, which is a website everybody should check out. Businesses, schools, parents, for children, but really a, a very moderate and measured and well thought out and compelling approach to how to use the internet in a responsible way and to be a responsible citizen of the universe called the internet and our digital lives. If that was true before a year ago, this past year, where we essentially moved the whole world online, it's all the more true now. Your work is even more important. So, Ellie, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you. So um, tell us about how you got into this work. What was it that interested you in it? And how did you get into it? Who, were your, who was your mentor that trained you? And what, what attracted you to it? So, so uh, it's, it's a great question. I don't get asked that often. So this is exciting for me. Um, so the story all begins in eighth grade now. Um, <laughs> I, I uh, always was focused on social emotional literacy in schools and how kids function. Um, the affective domain of education as opposed to the cognitive and the academic piece. Um, and uh, I was working on bully prevention programming. Uh, and I was fortunate to meet Dr. Ronan Novick, who was uh, in Long Island Jewish Hospital at the time, who developed a bully prevention program. I was trained by her. This goes back into maybe 2002. Um, and I was really focused on that. And uh, when I was looking to pursue a doctorate, Yeshiva University at the time, uh, Dr. Novick had shifted over there. Dr. David Pelkovitz was over there. And so I was very attracted to, uh, you know, these mental health giants that were also focused in education as well. Um, and so when it came time to write my dissertation, I sort of expanded on the uh, traditional school-based bullying piece to look at cyberbullying specifically. It was uh, 2007, 2008. And, you know, we were starting to hear about cyberbullying being an issue and online aggression it was relatively a new concept. Uh, very little research on it at the time. And uh, I, I was wondering if uh, the numbers would look similar in Jewish day schools and yeshivas that it did in the public school population. Mm -hmm. uh, so in looking at that, I started to discover uh, a lot of research on how technology was promoting this uh, aggressive behavior online. And it related to social functioning and psychological functioning and behavioral functioning and day-to-day -day and areas of impulsivity and disinhibition and compulsivity and all these terms that I had never heard anywhere else being applied to technology. And as far as uh, I was hearing about technology, there was one focus, it was the content and the answer was filters. And that was the beginning and the end of the conversation. And, mm -hmm. and here I was uh, doing all this research and finding it was a much more complex issue uh, than just that. And so from that, uh, I was getting asked at the time to do speeches on internet safety. And I just said, it's not about internet safety. It's about this crazy term, digital citizenship. And everyone said, that's a, that's a terrible term. Who ever heard of that? And, um, and I was really focused on, on that piece of it. And so I started writing about it. I started speaking about it. And, uh, you know, it, the message I think rang true for a lot of people that this wasn't just about the content, certainly content's an issue and filters are certainly a piece of it, but it's such a more complex um, issue. And, and, and really that's where, um, you know, I started uh, developing the digital citizenship project. And that, and that's a great contribution because 
Um, so many have no nuance in this, and whether it was an asifa that has come back to bite in some sense, because this year, if you reject all technology, you had no way for people to have Talmud Torah. You couldn't right. learn, you couldn't have a Rebbe, you couldn't have a Shear. So technology, it's, not, it's here to stay, and the question is how to use it responsibly, not how to reject it outright and, and altogether. And that nuanced approach, obviously, is, is very compelling. I have so many questions, I'm sure others do, and obviously I want to give, give time to the others. But Ali, tell us, are, are, is the Frum community, do you think that the Jewish community is out front on this? Are we way behind Christian and Catholic in terms of their promoting digital citizenship <clears throat> and how uh, young people can take the best of technology and the internet without the worst? Do you collaborate with those in <clears throat> other religions but who share that value? Or are you able to collaborate even within the Jewish community? Are there enough people working the way you are? Um, all, you ask a lot of good questions. <laughs> um, so I, I um, have limited uh, contact with the uh, with the non-Jewish uh, community. It's, it's just not my backyard. I have presented at a number of conferences. Um, I have looked into, you know, speaking at the Catholic schools uh, conference. It happens to be it's, uh, it's Pesach every year. So uh, I've never had the opportunity to speak there. But in speaking to other groupings, I, I find them as receptive, uh, non-Jewish groups as well, as receptive to the issues. Um, I think that in general, both in the, uh, in the, uh, non-religious world and in the non-Jewish religious world, the approach, um, has been very surface oriented. Uh, you know, probably the greatest website for digital citizenship is a website called common sense media. Um, and, and I recommend people to go there and look at it, but it's very, uh, do this, don't do this, post this, don't post that. It's very behavioral uh, oriented and it, it lacks the nuance and the insight. You know, people ask me, let's talk about TikTok. Let's talk about which filter is best. And, and it's important to identify these, but the underlying issues is so much more important because if we can inculcate a self-awareness into kids that they can utilize terms. And it's amazing when you hear an eighth or ninth grader talking about impulsivity or compulsivity when it comes to technology and, and be able to identify that behavior. If we give language, to behaviors, then we can manage it. Then we can talk about it. Then we can make adjustments. But if there's no language, and I just give you know straight rules, you know, don't post personal information online. But I don't understand what disinhibition is. I don't understand that right. I'm more likely to post private personal information or or uh, images or songs, uh, you know, like musically or TikTok. If I don't understand how I'm more likely, I would never walk in the street and and sing and dance suggestively. Uh, you know, you wouldn't do that. Uh, and but if it's online, there's disinhibition. So if I, if I can mm -hmm. understand disinhibition, then that will inform my behavior across the board, not, not limited to a specific platform or medium. Let me ask you so one of the questions, then I'm going to hand it off to my co-host. One more question. I want to go behind the beam for a moment with you, Dutch Shapiro. Uh, how hard is it for you to practice what you preach? When no one's around, are you like obsessed with your phone? Meaning, is all this technology... Is all this technology, I'm asking a personal question, not because I no, really want you to answer the personal part, but what I mean is I want to go behind the beam. Like sometimes <laughs> sometimes yeah. it's easy to, it's easy to intellectually or conceptually, and then it's hard to put it into practice, right? So, uh, you know, I sat through your presentation uh, that you gave in our community, and like I said, it's so compelling. But then when you're sitting there with that phone and those, whether it's the videos or whether it's the status updates or whether it's the ability to just live through other people's lives, to be distracted and and to to, to be able to 
vicariously experience because we want to escape our own lives. It's addictive. There's a reason it's addictive. So how does one overcome that addiction? And and how do your children feel about what you do? Are you like the Grinch who stole their technology lives? Are their friends all like, right. we could be on our devices all the time, but your father gave a seminar in our school and now <laughs> we lost our devices. Don't want your kids don't watch the show. You're good. I'm, I'm, I'm writing this down just because I want to get to the kids one. And then the first one was, do I practice what I preach? So, all right, I'm writing a note, me and then the kids. All right. Um, so, so when it comes to me, um, and I'm a dick now, um, the, the, the reality is we all have days where technology serves as an intrusion in our lives. And we have days where it's an enhancement in our lives and just taking those two terms, you know, we talk about language, uh, being so powerful and giving us the power to make uh, adjustments. We should be able to ask ourselves on any given day, did technology serve as an intrusion or even during the day, is it intruding or is it enhancing? And our goal as individuals, myself included, is to find more time of the day and more days where technology serves as an enhancement rather than an intrusion. And so like everybody else, uh, I have days when I have spent too much time in front of a screen or uh, on, on my phone. Uh, and I have days when I have done better. And, and I think we all go through that. And the idea is to each day be a little better. One of the strategies that we can utilize uh, to... To do that is to set rules and guidelines and boundaries for ourselves and, and with our family. And certainly as it relates to our kids, to be able to model that. So, um, for example, when, I, when I'm in shul and I dive in chakras and I'm wearing Carlson's villain, I don't have my phone with me. It's, it's in my locker. And it's not, 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 not such a from guy. It's not, it's not, it's just, uh, it seems like two, it doesn't go together, having your phone. And um, the good news is that my chakras is down to six and a half minutes. So that's, that's the positive <laughs> uh, part of it. But the reality is, is that I don't have my phone with me and um, and it just it's a different quality davening. You, it, it feels different even when it's in your pocket. The, the comparison, you can everyone can experiment, have it on the table while you're davening. Then the next day, have it in your pocket and the next day, leave it in your car and see how that experience is different. And we know from research, we know that the mere presence of a device reduces our cognitive functioning. It reduces our focus. Uh, kids who've taken standardized tests, when they have the phone on their desk, even if they don't touch it, uh, perform poorly. Adults who are engaged in work, when their phone is there and it's on the desk, they are not performing to maximum capacity. So right. we have to engage in specific behaviors, rules and guidelines that work for us. In my own home, we do something called going dark for dinner. Uh, there's no technology at the table for the 15 or 20 minutes that everyone's around the table for dinner time. And qualitatively, it makes such a difference. It, it makes a tremendous difference. So, you know, I, I'm nothing special like anybody else. I, I love technology. It's amazing. In so many ways, it enhances my life and uh, allows me to connect what we're doing right now. You mentioned COVID and uh, how could we have functioned without technology? Uh, Ravaren Lepiansky uh, mentioned uh uh, COVID and Zoom classes, he quoted the Pasuk Malikala Aretzdeya Es Hashem, that it, it, this is how Hashem is spreading uh, knowledge. And and th that opportunity is is tremendous. I asked him if he got pushback on that statement, and um, he said, it's MS. Why why would I get pushback on it? Uh, so, you know, that idea. So that's, that's the first thing. I, you know, all of us, it's a challenge like anything else, and we want to utilize what technology has uh, to make things awesome, to make things amazing, to be able to connect with family, friends, and, and be more efficient and be more knowledgeable. But if we assess that it's intruding in our lives and it's taking us out of the experience and, and uh, it's becoming a distraction, then we have to adjust our behaviors. So that's me. My kids um, is interesting. Uh, my son is in eighth grade, and uh, last year, the, his seventh grade, Rabbi, had asked me to come in and speak to the boys about technology. 
Uh, and fourth, yes, my son first. You know, usually the, the child would object to their parent coming in. I don't know, maybe your kids like when you come uh, to school or not. Know. So uh, my son didn't object. I came in. I, I spoke for about an hour to, to a group of seventh graders, and they asked great questions. They really, they asked great questions. They were engaged, et cetera. It happens to be this past Shabbos, um, my son's uh, friends were over, and uh, one of them, they had seen I was speaking uh, for an organization that was in the local newspaper, and uh, again, it was said, oh, we, we saw you in the paper, and, and uh, can you come back this year to our eighth grade class and give, the, you know, give your speech again? And so either, either they really like my speech or they don't like their Rebbe. So one <laughs> or the other. But I, I think they have a great Rebbe. So, um, you know, and then he asked me the question, you know, I said, is there any question you want me to add, uh, address during this roundtable discussion that we're doing? So this is, again, this is an eighth grade 13 year old boy who said, how much is too much screen time? Which I thought was like a fascinating question to come. I, I hear that from adults, but, uh, you know, about their kids, not about themselves. Right. Uh, but uh, to hear it from an eighth grader, and he, he was genuinely curious, what is the right amount of screen time? Like most kids, he likes watching videos. He likes playing video games. Um, you know, he likes playing sports. He likes doing all of those things. So he wanted to know what, what the right amount was. So in asking my kids, I, I, uh, I, I think that, uh, um, my, my oldest, uh, daughter actually said, said it really well. Um, it was annoying at the time, but looking back, she appreciates the limits and the, the guidelines and, and the communication around technology. So, so let me just jump in on the children piece, because when you spoke to the community, it was really, really well received. And I know a lot of parents, it really caused them food for thought. And I know for, for my wife and I, it was like a real game changer. We, we were just coming to that point of children and technology. And, um, and your presentation really opened up our eyes. The feedback I got, though, subsequent to that was that a lot of it sounds really good in theory, but in practice, my children just wear me down. That's what I kept on hearing from parents, which is that, yeah, we made the rules and we set the boundaries, but like every night was just a fight. Every night was a fight over timing and access and this website and that website, and they needed it for school and they wanted a little bit more of it. And so most parents just told me, they said, at the end of the day, you, just, you give up. You have limited capacity. You don't want to spend your entire life fighting with your child. And so my children wore me down. What advice, what chizuk do you have to parents out there who are going through this, who are struggling with the balance, both for themselves and really for their children, between setting the boundaries, but also not allowing it to take over the entire house and to create this pervasive almost toxicity in the house because you're always fighting over access to, to technology? So the, the, fir the first thing is um, I, I want to validate the parental experience as a parent myself. It's exhausting being a parent today. It just it is. It's, it's qualitatively much more challenging than it was in the past. Our kids have access to things that they never had in the past. And that very access uh, requires more oversight on, on the part of us, the parents. There, it's counterintuitive. You know, you think when you give your child a device, you give them technology, it it, it relieves you of some responsibility because they're occupied. But in reality, it gives you more responsibility and more uh, work. Uh, uh, and I think a lot of it, you know, people tend to think about content as the piece, but uh, the point that you're making about the amount of time uh, they're spending on technology. And also kids are not equipped to self-regulate in the way that adults, theoretically, most adults can self-regulate better. And so therefore, uh, as the parents, we need to self-regulate. So when we give our kids technology, we're really putting the onus 
on us to manage it. With that said, um, it is a challenge. Uh, and I do think that we can do better than we think we can do. You know, I, I think at times, you know, in, in behavior modification, the behavior always gets worse before it gets better. But it, it always gets better at some point, unless there's other uh, unrelated issues. And that, that happens too. But um, the, the reality is, is that it, it's, it has to be something that's constant. It has to be something that uh, you have rules and guidelines within the house and, and keep to them. Uh, it's not to say that during COVID, we don't make adjustments. We made a lot of adjustments, uh, including more screen time, both uh, recreationally and academically. Uh, the, the norms demanded it. But we also, we weren't in shul as well doesn't mean that we're not going to go back to shul because we got used to a certain, uh, you know, behavior. Same thing, just because we uh, utilize technology more frequently and, and in greater uh, uh, numbers than we may have in the past doesn't mean that we can't, uh, you know, pull back on it and, and restructure. But it does require uh, a commitment. It does require an ongoing conversation. And, and consistency uh, is really the key. Um, and that doesn't mean that your kids aren't going to have days where they're on their devices too much doesn't mean you give up. It means you keep at it and remind them, and it's a conversation. And also, I have found that uh, in retrofitting, it's very difficult to just make it about the kids. If you're doing it in a preventative way, uh, you know, introducing them to technology, it's much easier to set rules and guidelines, limitations. If we've already sort of uh, thrown our hats over the fence and we're stuck with it there now, then it has to be a family approach. So as a family, we say, okay, as a family, we're not going to utilize technology the first hour that we're home. No one in the family. You know, when you come home from school, you can go play outside, you can do your homework, you can do it. But there's no screen time for the first hour that everyone's home from school, work, et cetera. Um, and thinking about it in those terms, it has to become more of a family activity than just an individual activity. And so, um, you know, in, an authoritarian approach uh, to technology, you know, do as I say, not as I do, is, is generally not going to be effective. And that's not to say that parents that are struggling with this are authoritarian in nature, but they, people can do better. Uh, and I, I also think that, uh, you know, Rabbi Friend said at the uh, CMHS, I think he was quoting Voltaire, uh, don't let the enemy, uh, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Uh, we have to try to do our best and be good enough. Uh, we're not going to be perfect. And sometimes when we don't hit that mark of perfection, we feel down on ourselves and we say, oh, I just can't do this. The goal is not perfection. The goal is to be good and consistent. I remember when we uh, were first introduced to the internet back at Bokertone Synagogue, we had a dial-up modem and we wanted to run a program to pick <laughs> one modem for all of us. We all used to share. So we wanted to do a program for parents, I guess, similar to what you were doing, but this was back in the early days and show them how easy it was for their children to access things that were probably inappropriate. There were no videos. There was a pre-videos. There was no Google, but whatever the search engine was. And, you know, I, Ask let's, just, let's just say, I, I think we, yeah, I think we were all pretty surprised how easy it was to find certain things. And I think, you know, some of the, I see some of the people that are watching right now are probably there, Sal and, and some of the other uh, listeners, <laughs> but, but, but today, right. That was the beginning. Is there something that parents that we, right. I'm a little older than Rabbi Moskowitz. He, he's a little bit more 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 forward uh, thinking and, and he gets us obviously a lot, lot quicker than I do. But are there things that we as parents are completely not aware of that we should be aware of right now? Is there a program? I, I'm still using Facebook. I don't know Instagram. I don't know TikTok. <clears throat> so where, where I, should we be? I, Can we learn it or yeah, no? 
I learn new things every day. I literally learned something new last night as a new issue. I don't want to scare anybody, but I learned a new issue uh, in technology last night. I was uh, uh, doing a roundtable discussion with, with Rabbi Moshe Taub uh, from Queens, and he brought up this idea that it's not an idea. It's something that he's been dealing with where kids will go on to um, YouTube and hear atheist speakers give compelling arguments, uh, anti-religion atheists. And he's been getting phone calls from teenagers saying, I just don't believe, you know, if you look at, uh, uh, you know, Richard Dawkins and, and other, you know, thinkers in this field, they can give compelling arguments to 13 or 14 or 15 year old minds. And this is something that I never thought of. I never heard about. It, it doesn't really get to, uh, um, you know, my office, but I guess in the rabbinic sense, you, you hear about that. So I'm learning new things every day as well. Um, one of the themes that I talk about a lot with uh, uh, technology and parenting is being thoughtful and deliberative. And I, I like those two terms because it really applies to everything in every time, no matter what uh, the new trend is. Uh, anytime that a new trend comes in, uh, you know, I, uh, when I speak, I have a big B-E-H uh, on, on the screen and everyone thinks it's Be'ezras Hashem, uh, but it actually stands for, but everyone has. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges for parents is that, they, you know, they hear from their phone, but everyone has uh, TikTok, but everyone has an iPhone, but everyone has the latest Xbox. Um, and in most cases, uh, everyone does not have, uh, some kids have, uh, but at, at, at some point, everyone does have. And it, it really creates a challenge for parents to make those decisions. But this is not something that's unique to technology. This is across the board. Being a parent, you know, everyone, well, you don't have coats in, in Florida, but here at Montclair Coats. They have Montclair. It's a fancy brand in the five towns. Huh? Um, very expensive. Like $800. Made it down here, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the everyone has. Now, am I going to, you know, my child feels like they're being left out and, and they, uh, they, you know, I feel like everyone else has the thing that they don't. And it does, it can have a uh, impact on their emotional well-being. And, but that's something to address. But as a parent, we have to look at the consequences of action versus the consequences of inaction. And I think that thoughtful and deliberative approach applies to everything, to whether what age we're give, giving our children devices, uh, what access we're giving them, what apps we're giving them. And if it doesn't feel right, you know, the, the, it probably isn't right. And there are a few... Uh, pragmatic ways of determining whether you want to give your children access to something. So let's just say apps, let's just say TikTok, for example, but we're not talking about TikTok. We're talking about, you know, all, uh, all things that your children will come home and say, but everyone has. So the first thing is when you go to the app store, there will be a, uh, age recommendation, uh, 12 plus 17 plus whatever the age recommendation is. So that's your first indication of, you know, where things might be. Um, if you have a, a 10 year old and they're saying, I want Instagram, but Instagram says, 12 plus or Snapchat is 12 plus. So off the bat, if, if the social media company is not recommending it for your child's age, you can be sure it's not appropriate for your child. But then next to that, it'll give you reasons why they have rated something 12 plus. Uh, and that will include, uh, you know, crude and suggestive humor, um, you know, occasional nudity, you know, things along those lines. And then you say, wait a minute, do I even though Instagram or Snapchat thinks that 12 plus is the right age for this exposure, do I feel that way as a parent? And again, it's that thoughtful, deliberative process uh, that will help you as a parent make more informed decisions. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's the strategy. So it's not about any specific app or, or device. It's 
it's a it's a, a strategy of doing research. And and again, I mentioned the website. I'll mention it again. Common Sense Media. They will look at videos and and movies and websites and apps and and they'll tell you you know. Uh, they'll educate you about it. And, and I think that's important for parents to do the research. I want to change gears. And and I debated it. It might be a little bit controversial what I want to bring up. So I debated actually letting you go before we discuss it. So you don't have to weigh in, Dr. Shapiro, but, but we'll leave you there. And if you want to slide out, you can. Um, so I, you know, I, I'll just get this off my chest and, and maybe regret it later, but maybe not. You talk about cyberbullying, online bullying, and when we think about the word bullying, we usually think about children. First of all, I want to clarify, would you agree that calling a good friend and pulling a prank on them that breaks their heart is, is a form of bullying? <laughs> yeah, I, I was uh, kind of surprised that such thoughtful people would do such a horrible thing. But Wait till you tell, we tell you about what happened at the, the synagogue dinner. Okay, let's do that. So, 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 you haven't seen so anything bullying. yet. So I, I want to just throw out there and I know this would be controversial for the people who, who live on that platform. And I engage social media. I think the three of us, um, in terms of the, the rabbis here, do. And we use it in the best possible sense to promote Torah ideas, connection, to enhance, not to interrupt, and so on. But I feel, and I'm going to say about Twitter in particular, I think that there is a lot of adult bullying in the form of snark. And I'm talking about Jewish Twitter. I find it frustrating that Jewish Twitter, so much of the conversation of Jewish Twitter is not contributing to ideas and advancing thought and inspiring, but is like, who's got the snarkiest, the most cynical, who's got the observation, the comment, who can cut, who can be cynical, who can undermine. You could disappear any moment you want, Dr. Shapiro. You could leave. <laughs> no, this you is good. I'm liking it. So, so all, I'm you finding, just lost a lot of friends on Twitter. I, I, you know, I did, but I, I don't care. I'm going all in on it right. um, because I find that, um, you know, what do they call it? Microaggression? Is that what it's called? Microaggression? Is, yeah. Isn't that isn't the, the expression? Yeah, that's the term. Yeah. Yes. I think like on, on from Twitter, there's a lot of microbullying where yeah. someone puts up a thought and idea or let's just say an article Someone else puts up what they think is a hilariously snarky comment about it that they think is adorable and cute, and then others like it and post and it starts the strings of comments. And it's just, you know, like you said, that you you know, you wouldn't dress provocatively and dance in the street. I don't think if you were in a room, you would react and say these things in front of the person because you'd be more sensitive. And yet somehow it's not even the anonymity of the internet because people do it with their name. Right. But the the culture, yeah. even on from Twitter, is like it's a competition of cynicism, sarcasm, snarkiness, and just going for the, the cheap shot, the humor, the laugh, sometimes at other people's expense, sometimes at the expense of taking things seriously. I'm not talking about anyone in particular. I don't want anyone to read into it. I'm not talking about that. No, yeah, somebody just commented. I'm not talking about my cousin who I love. My cousin who I love wrote an adorably cute comment after this uh, um Mishpacha article went up, but others were less adorable and less cute, let's just say. But it could be Twitter, Facebook, could be elsewhere. So I wonder if you have a comment about how even those who are Torah personalities, even those who are committed to a certain set of values of midos, of interpersonal behavior, somehow the keyboard and the internet connection, somehow the physical distance, somehow that feeling like I'm just commenting on, like I know, and again, <clears throat> thank you for this, thank you for this therapy session and giving me this, this moment. But right, so Rabbi Brody, this magazine, whatever, I, I posted an article that I actually thought was thoughtful 
article and I want to really inspire a conversation around it. And unfortunately, this picture and the cover and the title that went with it is a distraction from the conversation. And I wish that people would read the article and, and, and really ignore the picture and the, and the title headline. But Just you know, for the I, record, and, I wasn't putting it up because of that. I was putting it no, up. No, no, I understand. I understand. I get it. A magazine. I, 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 There's no other it. modern Orthodox rabbi that's ever been on the cover. I got it. I got it. I appreciate that. But, but it's interesting because while there were friends of mine who posted it, let's say online, and I made the mistake of reading some comments on their page. So, you know, there's an interesting phenomenon. I'll, I'll end my little rant with this, which is people think that if you're not posting a comment on the page or on the profile of the person directly, but of somebody who quoted them or referenced it or linked to it, then it's okay. Like all holds barred. You can do whatever you want. But they're real people and real feelings and real personality. And and again, that doesn't mean there can't be an exchange of ideas and there can't be critical feedback and critical thinking. But like a rule of thumb, if you wouldn't say it in front of the person, you wouldn't say it in a crowded room to the person, then don't say it online. Is that is that fair? So, yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. The, the first thing is uh, I'll, I'll provide some free therapy here. Um, yes. Reggie Jackson uh, said they don't boo nobodies. So you should feel good. If they're booing you, it, it means you've accomplished something. Um, it's, a, it's a way of thinking about it. Um, but, uh, you know, you made, you made a point that even when their name uh, appears on their comments, um, you know, like if you, if you look in like the Yeshiva World News uh, coffee room, you know, a lot of the names are made up. Like, you know, Gadol Hadar, I'm, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> He's not the Gadol Hadar whoever. Gadol Hadar 14. He's, work, you know, he's working you know, on it. Yeah. Um, it's important to have aspirations. So, um, but you know, there, there is something called relative anonymity and, and really the psychologist, John Suller identified something called the online disinhibition effect. And it basically says that when we're in front of a screen, when we're communicating, communicating through a digital medium, we are more likely to do and say things that we would not normally do and say in a face-to-face conversation. Right. If you're anonymous, uh, like the Gadol Hadar, then, uh, you know, you would expect that people would make snarky, aggressive, uh, hurtful comments. But what's amazing is that from a psychological standpoint, even if I'm emailing you for my email, Ellie at EllieShapiro.com, or I'm posting, you know, Dr. Ellie Shapiro, it, it's clear who is saying it. I'm still more likely to do or say something in that online realm. There's a sense of distance, of, uh, of anonymity um that uh that you just there's something specific about the internet and digital communications that does that and that's part of where the education has to come from because you know if you ask yourself would i say this to the person's face and the answer is no then why am i why am i doing it online in 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 an environment where it's more public and more permanent um you know it it should be the opposite maybe maybe the guy's face when no one's around i'll you know be aggressive no no one can prove i said anything but here you know i'm willing to post it so that's it's a psychological function related to the internet, related to digital communication called the online disinhibition effect. And that really, if we are aware of that, again, if we have the language, it informs our behavior. Uh, and we should say, well, is this really, uh, you know, what I want to say? The other piece is, is impulsivity. There's something about uh, digital communication that makes us more impulsive. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, if I was angry at someone, I was told, you know, you, you write them a letter, you put it in an envelope, put it on your desk, you wait a week. And then by the time you're ready to send it, usually the issue is resolved itself. And that, you know, that is what I was taught anyway. I, mean, I was just like an angry kid. So they would tell me <laughs> write letters. Um, but today, what, what do you do when you're upset, when you're angry? You, you write, tweet, you blog, you comment, you, you know, you share, you, you know, you, it, it's instant because of the power that we have with our devices. Uh, you know, we, we, it, it just promotes this impulsivity. 
And uh, 22% of adults report posting things and sending things that they regret every week. Wow. Every week, 22% of adults. So like that's, it's a fascinating finding. And then kids, when you're dealing with kids who you give them this powerful tool that promotes impulsivity and it promotes disinhibition and uh, kids tend to be a little more impulsive anyway. So it's a very dangerous tool that, mm-hmm. that they have if they're not being educated properly. And it's a dangerous tool for adults. How many professional athletes do we hear about that like three years ago, they you know tweeted something that was offensive? Uh, in 2017, there were 10 students that were accepted to Harvard, Harvard University. So you, you got to be somewhat disciplined and smart to get in there. And they, they had their acceptances rescinded because of offensive comments they made in a private Facebook group. It wasn't even Twitter. It wasn't even public. It was a private Facebook group. But the idea that when you're disinhibited, you're going to say things and uh, and communicate in a way that, you know, look, maybe it is reflective of your personality, uh, but maybe it's not. Maybe, it, you know, we carry ourselves in real life with a certain level of inhibition, uh, you know, a healthy inhibition that, that uh, allows us to be regulated and self-control and self-aware. Um, and that goes out the window sometimes when it comes to technology. So just to, just to clarify, I, I'm a big boy and I put a lot of stuff out there. I write, I share opinions and thoughts. And when there are criticisms to to, to the substance of what I'm saying, I'm a big boy. I, you know, I, I don't always like it or want it, but I can take it. And I, that's what I, I invite and I welcome that by putting myself out there. There was a comment on, on Facebook today in response to my article. And it was a great point about a contrast I had at the end of the article between introverts and people who share. And I really appreciated the person's thoughtful response. I learned from it. I was wrong. And, and if I could tweak or, or put it out again, I would incorporate that change. But but that's what I find is, is shocking is that it's not legitimate criticism on the substance. Like I say, in certain circles in particular, there's just this atmosphere of competition of who can be the most witty, even when it's not elevating the conversation. So do you have a rule of thumb when someone's going to post something? What, what are the questions one should ask themselves? If they're a Ben Torah, a Bas Torah, if this is a aspirational, religiously spiritual aspirational person, what is the rule of thumb what should someone ask themselves before they post anything online so I, I can tell you what i do just because i'm like everybody else i use technology i have twitter uh i see things that i want to I, I you know i think to myself oh i have a snarky comment that I, I i think would get a laugh you know and and what what you, you i i don't think you'll find anything online i think i scrubbed everything but no it, <laughs> the, the idea is that 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 you know like everyone else you have these impulses Right, you have an impulse to share that 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 line that that chaf that you know you know if you would scroll up you'd see like eighteen other people already said it. Um, but like, <laughs> I, I always ask myself, the, the, how does this help me? Right? Am I advancing an idea? Am I promoting something? And will this reflect well on me? Those are two questions that I ask. Do I really need to share this? What is the upside for me sharing this comment? Mm-hmm. Right? It, what is the upside? And is this something that will stand the test of time? Um, and, and that's, that's what I ask myself. So, um, I end up usually, if I wait five minutes, the impulse to share it usually dissipates and I feel like I made the right decision. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I would recommend that people do that as well. There are some people that live for that, that, you know, it's not a question of this is, this becomes part of who they are, um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, the online medium is empowering and gives them the opportunity uh, to, you know, share their, uh, wit and wisdom, uh, you know, and, and that's not going to change. No amount of reflection is going to help them with that. Um, because they're committed to that's their online, it becomes their online identity. Uh, but for most of us, you know, is how important is it that I really share this? 
Um, and does this really reflect well on me? And, and this idea of does this really reflect well on me is so important um, because our digital footprints, uh, you know, is, is really so powerful in uh, the opportunities that are presented to us. And I try to tell kids this when they're younger, because you can formulate a digital footprint at a young age that is problematic, uh, that can, you know, prevent you from getting into certain yeshivas or uh, colleges or college scholarships or jobs down the road, or even when it comes to shit. Yeah. Where do, where do people go for shit? You, you go online, you look at the Facebook page, what kind of comments and now, you know, without getting political, uh, because there is a very strong interrelated uh, nature between politics and social media and, and technology. But let's just say, um, you know, pick any any president. Uh, let's not do something current, but let's say uh, Calvin Coolidge. I love Calvin Coolidge. He's amazing, right? I tweet about him all day. Calvin Coolidge is amazing. Uh, or I dislike Calvin. Oh, Coolidge was the worst. He's, uh, right? So I'm basically creating a digital footprint of my positions on an issue. Now, I may go for a job interview where the person hiring me may not share my political beliefs. Uh, and and it can cost me a job because he can say, you know, not only do I not like his political beliefs, uh, I think that he's volatile and he presents a liability for the company because here's a guy who just puts everything out there without really being concerned. Now, that's not to say that we don't have freedom of speech and people should feel comfortable sharing what it is that they want to share. Uh, in general, unless you're a rabbi, I avoid politics, religion, you know, these, these are hot button issues uh, to be posting on social media. And again, there is very little nuance uh, that you can have in, you know, however many characters they allow you today. Um, but, you know, you have to think, is this really going to be helpful to me? Um, now, it's, it's OK if you want to share those things, but just be aware that there are consequences as a result. And you may be willing to accept the consequences when you post an article, when you post a position that might be controversial. You think about it and you say, you know, I'm willing to whatever the consequences of my position on this are. I feel strongly about this and I'm willing to accept that. But you need to recognize there are going to be consequences. Sure. So just to jump in for a second, you know, I thought you were going in a different direction when you when you said I'm not going to be political, but obviously it impacts politics, which is that I think in many ways this conversation is connected to our original conversation that we had tonight, which is that I think part of the casualty of moving so much conversation online to Twitter and to Facebook is you lose the relationships. And as Rabbi Goldberg, you just said, something you would never say to someone's face, even if they disagreed with you vehemently in politics, but because you had that relationship and you're in the same room together, I would never say to you, on Twitter or on Facebook, it becomes that much more permissible and I'm less aware of the consequences to the relationship as a result of me of me posting it. And, and I'll even give you as, uh, an example, and, and you know, I'll apologize publicly, but Rabbi Goldberg, when I first saw the, the cover, so you, know, you and I are pretty good friends, and, and we sometimes play around a little bit, and I was sending some texts, and then I realized that I'm not just like sending it to a machine, but like you have feelings, and you're a real right. person, and I'm sure it's like hurtful to you. And, and I backed off very quickly, and I recognized that even though our banter is fun oftentimes, Sometimes it's also not appropriate. And, um, but even that's an example of, of you're my nearest. I mean, you're one of my closest friends. You're a brother to me. And so quickly on WhatsApp, it was easy to descend into that like snarky, let's joke around, let's have banter with each other, not fully recognizing the impact that's going to have on another person. I had a similar experience. I had once posted something I had spoken and, and I was like, wow, so exciting to have 400 people come out and, and speak. And, and someone, a good friend of mine commented on it, just jokingly, like, nah, there were only 200 people there. And to <laughs> me, uh, the, the problem wasn't, I know he didn't mean anything by it, but for me, 
my numbers accuracy is so important to my identity right. that if someone starts questioning the numbers that I present, that really becomes, you know, problematic for me. You know, I, uh, I include a lot of data and statistics in my, my presentations. Uh, you know, some people say that it, it's too much data and, and statistics. Uh, actually, about 72% of people say it's too much data and statistics <laughs> in, in my presentation. But to me, the numbers are so important. And, and when someone questioned that in a public way, that was very hurtful to me. And, and, and I know he didn't think so, because he's just joking around. No, it wasn't 400, it was 200. Okay. But for was me... It, was, it, was, was it Robin Moskowitz? <laughs> um, I'm sensing a theme here. Um, but yeah, but I, I think a great example, and, and we should look up to the relationship between Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Anthony Scalia. I mean, these are two people who had completely different opinions on everything, but they were the best of friends and they respected each other. But if their entire relationship was through Twitter, uh, you know, it would it would be problematic. And, and the truth is, no one has ever convinced someone else to change political opinions in a Twitter conversation. It's just never happened. Right. Uh, and, you know, to even bother trying, there happens to be a good friend of mine who's been posting a lot. He lives in Israel, but has very strong opinions on on the current election or the election that we just had. Um, I know that's a political distinction as well. I didn't mean to make that, but uh, he's been making comments <laughs> on, on, on the election. And like, you know, I, I, I found him to be so radical and so far now I know him and I'm, I find it hard to believe that he's aligned himself with certain opinions and then publicly sharing them from 6,000 miles away. Like, it was amazing to me. But, um, you know, if I didn't know him and was close with him and, you know, I, I would probably have, you know, take issue with, you know, many of the mm. things he says. Amazing. Really a lot of food for thought. Dr. Ali Shapiro, thank you so much for being with us this wow. evening and sharing your expertise and insights and coming behind the Bima. People can definitely check it out, find out more at thedigitalcitizenship.com, thedigitalcitizenship.com. There's a lot of really uh, important um, important help and resources there, so definitely check it out. And thank you, and we look forward to bringing you back to our community to continue these conversations. So thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, wow. lots to lot to think about. A lot to think about. Um lot to talk about. Yeah, especially the truth is it's funny, Rabbi Moskowitz, I could tell that you did that and I appreciate your having backed off. You didn't need to. And that's part of this also is that you're a brother to me, so it's all in good fun. You weren't saying anything that I didn't feel myself. I knew that you were genuinely happy for the part that I'm happy about. And yes, you can laugh about No, no, so it didn't it didn't bother me in the least. It's the the part is that like the people that you don't have a relationship with, you don't know. That's when so they I, so I have to be honest, I was shocked when I I mean, I know the post that you're referring to, a friend of ours, Israel made a very nice post about it, and I was shocked by some of the comments um, and uh, it, it's disappointing and I agree with you wholeheartedly that there's this culture out there on Facebook and Twitter where people think they could say things and they think just because you're a public figure and again, we have, as right. you said, we have thick skin we can handle it, we can debate we can put issues out there and have people disagree with us but um, you know, there has to be a concept of basic decency in the way right. that we communicate with other people recognizing that there's a human being on the other end. Right, right and that seems it, to be missing with did Mishka, Mishpacha reach out to you? Did they see all uh, this and say, listen, we're sorry? For, oh, no, no. For, for uh, you know, it's interesting. Let's see. It's interesting in our last few minutes over here. So, um, <laughs> behind the beam with Rabbi Goldberg. No, the whole process is, is actually fascinating. So, I read this article. I, I, I'll tell you what precipitated the whole thing. 
And I don't know if there's anyone still listening or if anyone's listening later, whether they make it to the end of this podcast to hear this, which is probably the perfect place to put this conversation. So um, it's like Shavuos so, night. You say everything controversial you want to say. Right. The four in the 4 a.m. <laughs> slot. Right. So, yeah, I speak about that. <laughs> so, yeah, that's your slot. Exactly. Now you know why. Right. Now you know why we give it to you. So, yeah, exactly. You know, what happened was I, um, I, um, I received one too many shidduch reference calls that was really frustrating me because the questions have gotten outrageous. The questions are just right. absurd. Some of them. Oh, now everybody's sympathy telling me that this, thank you. Thank you everybody for listening. I appreciate that. <laughs> so, um, the questions are, are, are really outrageous and I'm not going to now tell you all the, the level of outrageous. I'll tell you the most outrageous thing that really bothers me. And I don't say this about everybody, although I love everybody, but there are some exceptional young people or people of any age. When I get a call about them as a reference, and I'll say, they're this, they're that, the amazing, I'll start to, uh, first couple questions I'll answer, and then I'll say, listen, stop. So-and-so, if I had a daughter that age, I'd want her to marry him. So-and-so, if I had a son that age, I'd want him to marry her. And they're like, that's so nice, Rabbi. But, anyway, co- coming back to the question. So, question number seven. I said, I don't think you heard me. I'm not entertaining any more questions. I just told here. you everything that you need to know from me, which is that I would want my child to minimally date them, but maybe marry them. I'm done. Yeah. I'm out. So, the question that was on the script, that's on the script now of so many of this, and, and there are scripts. I actually stopped someone and asked them, Are you reading off someone? Is this going around? <laughs> Because I get the same questions was about, you know, what medications are, are he or she on? So I posted something on Facebook about, uh, you know, when that gets asked, that's going to be a conversation stopper for me. I want to help. I want to be part of the solution. I love helping the shidduch process advance and people find their happiness, but I'm just not. And there was a whole conversation on Facebook about, about that. And so I said, you know, I'm going to write an article about it where I can further develop my thoughts because social media is not the place for developed, sophisticated thoughts. So, um, so I wrote an article. Uh-huh. And I put it up on, on my website and I sent it to our editor of our weekly, put it, assuming I was going to put it in it. And that was the whole thing. Got it off my chest, wrote the article. And I sent it to one of the main journalists and editors at Mishpacha, who I'm very friendly with and I like a lot and admire his writings. And I said, I think you'll enjoy this piece. Just, you know, sometimes exchange things. And he said, take it down. We want to use it. Ooh. It'll be a great way to start a conversation about something that's really important. So I took it down. And I ended up knowing it was going in that much bigger platform. And we know the readership because we had on the owner, Mishbach, a few weeks ago. And of course, I had to get the snarky comment from someone today. I guess this was an exchange for the fact that you had on the owner of, of Mishbach. You got to go on the cover, even though the owner probably doesn't even know who's going on the next cover. If you knew Eli Pali that, that week, but whatever. God bless everybody. These are your closest friends anyway. So, um, so, uh, so then they yeah. said to me, you know what, we've never done this, but we want to put it on the cover because that will draw attention. We want to really get the conversation started about this. I was like, okay. So they took some pictures and never, no one ran by me the pictures or the headline and, and even edited the final article, which was fine with me. Again, what's frustrating is it's the substance. You want to take issue with the substance of the article? I'm all ears. I have a lot to learn. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not analyzing it correctly. Maybe I missed a comma, an apostrophe. I'm all ears on the substance of the article, but like the amount of comments i didn't choose the headline right. i woke up to so many gifs and memes of monsters this morning 
<laughs> it's hilarious. I, I want you to say, I'm actually laughing about that. It's hilarious, right. and I could care less. So anyway, in my Amunashir this morning, this is not bearing all in this episode. It's been a long week. <laughs> in the Amunashir this morning, I always give examples of, you know, when this happens, the other thing happens, and you don't know why, and Hashem always has a plan, and don't be frustrated by it. Recognize it's part of the master plan. And I was giving examples. You missed the flight. You got stuck at the red light. Somebody sent an email about you. They called you the monster on the cover of a magazine. <laughs> I, mentioned, I mentioned that. So so that editor, who, who I had originally had the exchange with, sends me the clip from my Amunashir this morning and writes, you're hilarious. So I wrote like, uh-oh, am I in trouble? I, that's yeah. like my therapy, the Amunashir. Yeah. It's my oh therapy. My so he wrote, no, you're not in trouble. In fact, we feel bad. I said, don't feel bad. It's all good. And here's my last line I'll say on this. I, I do feel from the bottom of my heart Whatever the picture, you know, how many, you know how many comments I got. You're holding a smartphone. There go the shidduchim for your children. Hey, loser, wear AirPods today. Nobody holds up a phone to their ear. Like all the major substance of my article, right? So um, I, I love all the comments and I love all the people who sent them. But anyway, so I said, I said to the editor, and, and this is from the bottom of my heart, genuine. And that's why I didn't care when you made your your comment early this morning. Is this is Hashem's way of making sure that even though I'm on the cover of a magazine, it does not go to my head. <laughs> that's how, Hashem made sure that it absolutely did not go to my head. Anyway, if you're listening, read the article. It's substance. That's what I care about. I hope it'll start a Great conversation. Article. We're proud have, of you, and you deserved it. I was I just wondering if people who, can get married. Who, who, who are you on the phone with? <laughs> it's a long. Who phone are you talking call. to? It was a long phone call. Right. So those are the shidduch phone calls. That was that's what, yeah. that's the look. That's the look that's they the were look. going for. That's the, the shidduch phone calls. Yeah, wow. the shidduch phone calls. The shidduch phone calls. So, yeah. Thank God. Thank God. Hold on one second. We started tonight with an enormous shame on you, what happened at the Capitol today, and there are other shames on you. I'm not going to go to them. Is that the proper plural? Shames on you? Shame on uses? On uses. Shame on use. <laughs> Too huge. Shame on, shame on <laughs> use. But here is a here is a hats off to you for tonight. Newly elected Congresswoman Kat Kamek, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, from Florida, strong supporter of Israel. She put an Israeli flag alongside the American flag outside her office. And a picture there. Here's the best part. You know who her office is next to in the halls of Congress? Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Tlaib. She's mm-hmm. right next to Rashida Tlaib. So when no, Rashida Tlaib enters gonna... her office, <laughs> she's got to walk by yeah. the Israeli flag. Yeah, Rashida's going so, to put up her own flag now. She's going to put up her own flag. But anyway, hats yeah. off to you. So that's a that's okay. a good thing. Anything else, uh, gentlemen, as we uh, wrap up, as we wrap up uh, season two, episode 15? It's really When do we crazy. switch to season three? After Yeshiva break, maybe? Yeah, it's kind of arbitrary. Do we have something that we switched to? I don't know. Well, we switched arbitrarily from one to two. So at some point, we'll have to switch from two to three. Are we going to be broadcasting live from somewhere? On Yeshiva no, we'll break? Back. We're, we're back. No, I'm are not even talking about break? that. <laughs> uh, are we taking off for that week? It's a good question. I don't know what we're doing. Mm. It's a good question. To wait and see. Ladies and gentlemen, please be in touch with us. If there are topics you'd like to hear us speak about, we get a lot of feedback that you know our guests are wonderful. Tonight's guest, no exception. Really informative. A lot, a lot of food for thought. But people like our conversations, our banter, they get a different side of us. They get a very exhausted late at night, a little bit <laughs> less filtered side of us. So if there are topics you want us to talk about or you want to know what we think about things, be in touch. Send us emails, way. comments. We'd love to hear from you. I just see Phil Landau's uh, question. You get a lot of calls about me being on medication. Is there? Is there? <laughs> I get calls is that like a once a week phone call? Get calls suggesting that you be on. It should be on medication. No, the med- no, listen, no, medical- it's not a joking matter. It's not, not a joking, joking matter. matter. I'm exactly. not joking. I'm just joking a little bit. 
Come That's on. what I was going to say. The, med- the medication is a sensitive question, but it needs to be dealt with appropriately. And the whole thing is so out of control. It's not even normal. Really, really. Out of why control. does it surprise you? That... Go ahead. No, yeah, but why- I mean, every, every part of our life is a consumer mentality, right? So I walk into Starbucks and I don't want to conform to any one coffee. I want to have it the exact way that I like it. And if I go into... Even when I go to yeshivas, right? If I live in the tri-state area, so I'm picking yeshiva based on very specific external criteria, right. hat, no hat, jacket, no, like whatever world you live in, right? That's that's what I'm judging it based on. Um, isn't the 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 criteria of shidduchim just a natural extension of that? It is, yeah, but that's not a that's not an excusable or tolerable or, or an acceptable thing. In other words, we're living in a world. We always give this example. Actually, our our good buddy Rabbi Yanki Harowitz, who was a past guest on Behind the Bima, I remember when he spoke here years ago already, gave this example, and he said, Rabbi Moskowitz, you're way too young to appreciate this, but Rabbi Brody will really appreciate this. You you remember when 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 your favorite Jewish or non-Jewish musician came out with a new album, right? I'm yeah. not talking records. Let's go right to tapes. Okay, so. Or tape, uh, the tape had, I don't know, what, how many songs are on the average tape? Like 12 10 songs. songs, right? You had to fast forward in, in rewind. Right, so, so 12 songs, 10 songs, the average tape. And they're like three great songs on the tape. You had to listen to the whole tape, both sides of it. You had to make your way through all the mediocre and bad songs. I remember. it was worth it for the good songs. Right, I remember I, my first tape. Te- like I got it, my, the first tape deck, it was able to stop automatically. It just knew when the end of the song was. Really? You know, that's great. Yeah. High tech. It's like a, High tech. It's right before CDs. People don't know the mysterious and the selflessness yeah. of a mixtape. really old. They had, they had the two tape, <laughs> you had the two tapes next to each other and you'd press play Copy. and yeah. play and record and you have to stop and a mix and you were basically trying to accord, you know, and it t- you'd be, you could be up the entire night and if there was someone you really liked, you would make a mixtape. It was like a great gesture of... Yeah commitment of loyalty of maybe maybe some would say even affection to put the work in to make a mixtape anyway so his point was today and this is like back to the ipod day early ipod days it's like today you make a playlist i only listen to what i want to listen to i don't have to listen to anything else so people want to have a playlist among their spouse right like stop talking i only want to hear you say this let's skip (laughs) the next thing you're going to say we're going to skip the next track where you criticize Uh, me or you say the things i don't feel like listening to and that's bad so you're right rabbi moskowitz it's a it's a disposable society and we're living in a society where you upgrade to version 2.0 and 3.0 you upgrade your phone you upgrade your car you upgrade your everything people want to filter and know in advance and they want to find perfection and they try to project and pretend they offer perfection but it's all a fake world let people be on a journey to discover each other let them find each other. I had a, a shadchan, a very active shadchan, who texted me today after reading the article. And uh, let's see, hold on, let me find this text. And said to me, really agreeing and, and, and really giving positive feedback. And a lot of the article, disagreeing with parts of the article and disagreeing about the medicine question, but then also sharing that one of the shaduchim they had made, one of the parties disclosed to the other a few dates in that they take medicine for mild anxiety had for years, but they're fine. And, and they, you know, the other party heard that and was, you know, wanted to process it a little bit and understand it, but stayed with it. And they're very, very happily married. And so mm-hmm. I said back to that shot, let me ask you a question. If before they went out, 
a reference who was asked would have said, oh, you know, she's got mild anxiety. He's got mild anxiety. They take some medicine. But they've got it together. It doesn't really show itself. Would they have nixed the shidduch? And the answer was, yeah, they probably would. Especially the boys who are in the in the powerful position where they have resumes spread out on the desk and they've got the choice. So if you've got 25 girls not with anxiety and on medicine and this one girl with it, why would you go out with her? So they're happily married right now. And they never would have been happily married. And they had the journey of discovering and sharing and trusting and processing. And that doesn't mean they would have followed through. Maybe he couldn't have gotten comfortable or she couldn't have gotten comfortable. Maybe they wouldn't have stayed together. But we're trying to weed things out and it's not working. It's not like we have a much higher success now of marriages or of engagements. So it's not working. And that's some of what we talk about in the article. Right. No, I obviously agree with you. I'm I'm simply saying I think it's representative of of a greater... Um, issue in in America and really our society. I'll tell you another story. I know someone who, when they were applying for yeshivas in Israel, one of the questions the yeshiva asked them was this exact question, are you on any Mm -hmm. medication? So the person confided that they take something to help with a little bit of anxiety, nothing major. Um, Certainly many high school students do. There's nothing wrong with that. And they were rejected by the yeshiva. And they ended up going to a different yeshiva and all of this person's friends ended up switching to the other yeshiva also because they were so turned off by this story. They, they wanted to show respect. They wanted to show allegiance to their friend. They all switched to this other yeshiva to show that we're not going to allow ourselves to be judged based on an issue like that. So I'm simply saying, I think it's, it's an issue in greater society of, of exactly that consumer mindset that you were referring to. I'm going to tell you this right now. Here's another bold, controversial statement. Maybe we should have hung up two minutes ago. But if, especially with large families and many children, if anybody tells you that that medicine cabinet's bare, that nobody in the family needs growth hormone, ADD, anxiety, mild anxiety, or anything else, they're lying. We're living in a world, just check the statistics and the numbers. They're just lying. So I'm not saying it's a badge of honor or somebody should take it if they don't need it, but I am saying that it's not a badge of shame and that you can have somebody who's taking those medications and they are the most amazing spouses and parents and have the most they have their lives together and you have people who there's such stigma for that and therefore their parents or they don't get the help they need so that they could say they're not on any medication and they are narcissistic, selfish, horrible parents or spouses. And so it's not working. If I had to summarize the whole article, it wouldn't be about a monster. It would be, it's not working. It's not working. It's not working. I'm into okay. that. We should discuss that in another episode, though, because I think that's a really important conversation Lots to have. We, well, we have some prominent Shadchanim who are going to come on. we got a great list of uh, upcoming guests. Should we float some of the upcoming guests who are committed to come on? We're working out the schedules. Should we tease it out or leave it here? I will say this leave in closing. There. Okay, but I will say this in closing. I will say this in closing. There is a guest that we had been pursuing to bring on and had shown some interest, and everyone would be really excited <laughs> by. But then we um, found out the price tag, and it was $5,000 for half an hour. And we couldn't justify $5,000 for half an hour, as, as important as the show is to the world. We could not. So I want to make this very clear to our audience and end with this. Behind the Bima has never and will never pay for a guest. Our guests come on because they want to reach you and they want you to hear them. And we want you to be able to have that exchange of ideas. So this is our commitment to you. Hold on one second. Breaking news. This is our commitment to you that we have never- We will not be taken and, hostage. And we'll never, we will never pay for a guest. We want the guests who want to be with us and the guests who want to be with you. So on that note, 
Thank you to Rabbi Moskowitz, Rabbi Brody. Thanks for letting me get all that off my chest and speak a lot tonight and every Wednesday night. Thank you to Dr. Eli Shapiro. If you'd like to sponsor an upcoming episode, know that your sponsorship reaches thousands and thousands. We'll share our statistics at some point, but there are thousands, thousands, tens of thousands who listen. And um, that's a sponsorship gets very far. So you can contact Lee, L-E-E, at BRS Online uh, to be able to sponsor. Next week is taken. We have a few sponsors lined up, but we've got some other opportunities. So be in touch with Lee at BRS Online. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy. Thank you for listening to Behind the Bima. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week for another peek behind the Bima.